book of Philippians and chapter 2. And we'll uh, have a look at that together. <coughs> Excuse me, I have a, a bit of a, a cold and a sore throat, um, which happened to coincide with coming up to Scotland. Pure coincidence, I'm sure, but this is where it happened. Um, but we'll read from verse 1 of chapter 2 through to verse 16 of uh, chapter 2. Let's hear God's word together. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe, as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. This is the word of God. May he bless it uh, to our hearts. Um, I said this morning that this was going to be uh, a message of two halves. Um, and uh, I posed a question that if Jesus is the light of the world, then how does he shine? If Jesus is the light of the world, then how does he shine? And uh, we, we, we looked at part of the answer to that this morning. And really, I'm going just to continue looking at that answer again this evening. I was very conscious, as I am very conscious, because uh, there's a, a, an itinerant nature to my ministry now more than there used to be. Um, as I travel around, that it's very easy to, as it were, bring out your two best sermons on an occasion like this. Um, this is probably the only time that you'll hear me, so bring out my best to uh, impress you. Uh, you go away thinking, wow, that's Steve Timmons, what a great preacher, um, because you've only heard two of my best sermons. If you'd heard all the others, uh, you'd be less, um, less favorably disposed to me. Um, but it seemed to me that that's not what the purpose of this is. One of the benefits of being 56 years old. Yes, I know it's, you can't believe it as you're looking at me, but I am. Uh, being 56 years old is that 
um, people's opinion of you isn't quite so compelling as it used to be. Um, and so my purpose is to try and, um, and, and give you a, an insight into God's mission. This is a mission weekend. It's a great privilege to be part of that. But really, I just want you to understand something that is at the very core of what it means to be the people of God and what God's missionary heart is. Uh, and that is expressed through his people. So it seemed best to me really just to be very clear about the thing that I wanted to do and take the opportunities that I had to do it to grasp them with both hands and to make sure that I left you under no, uh, no illusion at all as to what uh, we should be thinking about. And that is, if Jesus is the light of the world, how does he shine? And he shines through us as his people. That is his mission strategy. His church is his missionary strategy in the world. You and I are his mission strategy. Uh, and that's a great privilege. Now, I have to confess that I used to be afraid of the dark uh, as a child. Uh, I have to confess also, I was a little bit uneasy about it even as I grew up. Um, it wasn't the darkness that uh, scared me so much as what I couldn't see because it was dark. It was what was hiding in the shadows that I used to be terrified of. I grew up in a very rural part of the country and uh, riding my bike down dark country lanes without the benefit of street lighting um, on a dark winter's night was fertile breeding ground for an overactive teenager's imagination. Um, I'd never read Tolkien's famous work, Lord of the Rings, but I thought of Ents way before he did. Um, really, quite seriously, trees do walk and trees do talk. At least they did on the country lanes that I used to ride down uh, on those dark evenings. The only difference between my trees and Tolkien's trees is that my trees weren't good. Um, in fact, they were malevolent and uh, terribly suspicious. Um, but... Now, I could come across as being all macho uh, and say that I now laugh in the face of darkness. Ha! Darkness, I say. I could say that, but it wouldn't be strictly true. I still don't like darkness. When my children uh, were growing up, and we used to have, you know what dads do, uh, campouts in the back garden, I insisted on leaving the outside light on all night. I used to say it was so the children uh, wouldn't get scared. Um, but it was so their dad wouldn't get scared. I'm not as scared as I used to be. I turn the light off now when I go to sleep, um, <coughs> as long as my wife's in bed with me. Um, but darkness just does something, doesn't it? it the, there is something about it, because I, like I think all of us should, uh, I prefer the light. Now, obviously, we're not talking about ghouls and ghastly things here. Uh, but darkness does hide real and tangible dangers, doesn't it? Like potholes and low branches and cliff edges. But since time immemorial, human beings have, uh, have created light in order to dispel the darkness and have found it uh, significantly effective to do so, and for good reason. So you can read the Bible, and consistently the Bible uses light and darkness as powerful metaphors. Not for just generic good and evil, some vague impersonal thing, but for God himself and for the devil, the prince of darkness. 
And that's why it's very significant that in the Old Testament, when the prophet Isaiah is preaching, he describes the people of Israel as being a light to the nations. That was God's purpose for them in the world, that they would be the light to the nations, that they would so shine in the midst of darkness that the nations would be drawn to them like moths to a flickering candle. But Israel... Israel quenched that light, didn't they? Israel refused to be that light. Through their wickedness and their depravity, through their idolatry, they snuffed out that light. But the purposes of God would not be frustrated. And so Jesus comes. And Jesus, as we saw this morning, comes and declares, I am the light of the world. I am all that Israel was meant to be, both in terms of my role, in terms of my function. I am that light. In fact, I am the very light that Israel was pointing to. I am the very light of which God was always promising. I am all that Israel was failed, failed to be. But then get this, and this is the critical issue of what we looked at this morning and what we're looking at this evening. His people, even as the Old Testament they were meant to be, but now under the new covenant they truly are, become the means by which His glory radiates around the globe. God has one simple and a very effective mission strategy. And that is to scatter communities of light in the dark corners of this world. You see, those of us who are Christians, those of us who belong to this this church called Charlotte Chapel, because we are united to Christ, because we are in Christ, to use Paul's rich term then we, as his people, are that light. We are that light. So Jesus, who says, I am the light of the world, can say to his people, you are the light of the world. So darkness may surround us and may threaten to engulf us, but the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus shines irrepressibly. You see, we don't need to be afraid of the darkness, do we, as a people of God? Because in Christ, we are the light. So our challenge is shine. Be the church. Shine, church. But the question is, how? Um, And I could be wrong on this, but from Philippians 2, from where we get the answer, I think you might be a little bit surprised. So what we're going to do is jump right into the central section verses 6 to 11, into the so-called Christ hymn. That's what uh, scholars and commentators have called it for a very long time, for the simple reason that it's a beautiful piece of poetry about Christ. Uh, there's all sorts of theories about these, uh, this being a baptismal hymn, um, and that Paul simply took it and uh, used it, put it in the middle of his letter to this, this church in Philippi. Uh, there's no evidence for that, and it could easily be that Paul himself composed this, uh, this, the, the, this great piece of poetry uh, to speak about Christ. But it's there for a very good reason. It's not Paul just displaying his skill um, as, uh, as, 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 a, as, a, as an artist. It is Paul being a great theologian, a practical theologian, uh, a a man who knew what it was to bring the gospel to bear on the hearts and lives of God's church. 
So let's have a look at four things that Paul says about Christ from this hymn. Uh, First of all, verse 6, who being in very nature God. He says in verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And uh, so the, the, the subject of who is Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. Now this first clause of this Christ hymn is a statement. Paul takes it as a given. He doesn't argue it. He simply asserts it. The one that we know as Messiah Jesus, the one who came to fulfill all the Old Testament promises uh, that we read about all the way from Genesis right through to Malachi, that promised servant of God who was called Jesus is in very nature God. Now that was a phenomenal claim for Paul the monotheist to make. Paul was a Jew of Jews. He believed in that there was one God, just one God. And yes, the the Jews believed that God would send his servant. But Paul is saying more than simply that Jesus comes as the servant of God. He says that Jesus, who is the servant of God, is none other than God himself. He is in very nature God. That's who he is. And everything that follows is a description of what God himself has done. Not an angel, not an agent, not a messenger, not an errand boy, but God himself. Everything that follows in this crisis is about what God has done. And it really is mind-blowing, reality-changing truth. Because let's have a look at what God has done. So who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped? That is, held on to tenaciously like a a terrier might hold on to a ball. Or a Yorkshireman might hold on to a ten pound note. No matter how much you might try, you can't prize it out of his, his, his sweaty palm. No, with Jesus, he was not willing to hold on to his nature as it were his visible nature his visible glory he was willing to let go of his form he was willing to let go of the right to be seen as God to be recognized as God to be worshipped as God he knew who he was and he was willing to let go of the visible glory he was willing to conceal that in a veil of flesh Now, as remarkable as the incarnation is, because that's the term that we use to describe it, it wasn't altogether unexpected. You see, as you read the Old Testament, you discover that God was in the business of coming down. That is, God was a God who not infrequently came down. Uh, If we had time, we'd look at Genesis 3, 3, uh, where the the, the writer describes what is commonly called the fall, when man and woman, the first man and woman, disobeyed God. And at the point of their sin, where they're aware, they're beginning to be aware of the cataclysmic consequences of their rebellion. At the point of that rebellion, what does God do? But He comes down. And then in, um, in, later on in, in Genesis, at the story of the building of the Tower of Babel, where the people uh, congregate instead of being dispersed as God said that they should be, they congregate to make a name for themselves. They build a tower to reach the heavens. But then in a note of delicious irony, the, 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 the narrator tells us that God comes down. So again, at the point of sin, what does God do? He comes down. 
when the people of Israel are in captivity in Egypt and God is raising up a rescuer in the name of Moses uh, and, and uh, God, uh, Moses, sees this bush burning without being consumed and he approaches it and he, he hears a voice saying, take off your shoes for your holy ground. Why? Because God again has come down at the point of redemption, at the point of rescuing his people. That's precisely what he does. He comes down. When the people of Israel have been released from that captivity and that bondage and they're brought over the, 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 the Red Sea and they're brought to Mount Sinai where God enters into a, a relationship with them, a covenantal relationship to them. They surround the mountain of Sinai and what does God do but he comes down to the mountain. And then as they're in the wilderness and he tells them to build a tabernacle uh, and there to put the Ark of the Covenant on which the Ten Commandments are to be placed, that there, what does God do when the tabernacle rests but God comes down? When they build a temple under Solomon, uh, when they're in the promised land and the tabernacle is in the midst of it, what does God do then when he consecrates that but he comes down? You see, God is in the business of coming down. So the fact that God came down in the incarnation is not, as it were, altogether unexpected. And so perhaps we should read verse 6 as being saying, since he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be uh, grasped, but made himself nothing. He's a God who humbles himself. Did you notice in Genesis 3, he's a God who at the point of sin comes down. At the point of sin, he comes to meet with Adam and Eve. He could so easily have consumed them. He could so easily have judged them instantaneously, but he didn't. He came down. He was like, as it were, a jilted lover, but he didn't go sulking. He didn't lash out with his hurt pride. No, he came and faced those objects of his affection and called them to himself yes he spoke words of judgment but also he acted in grace so since he was God he did not consider but we shouldn't minimize the incarnation as though it was just as it were another event in a great string of events no there was something that was qualitatively and quantitatively distinct about it a fertilized egg in the womb of a virgin are you kidding me a newly born baby in a feeding trough. Are you being serious here? The universe had never seen anything like that before. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Verse 7. But made himself nothing. Now what does that mean? He made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Well, obviously he didn't stop existing, but neither did he stop being God. Older translations of this use the phrase emptied, and that is actually a good translation of the word that Paul uses here. He emptied himself. But what that means isn't that he stopped being God. It simply means that he became something that he wasn't without stopping being who he was. He emptied himself in the sense of he poured himself out. He gave everything that he had to give. He didn't hold himself back. He didn't hold anything back in reserve. He gave absolutely everything. 
He gave of himself and he gave everything of himself. And what does that mean? Well, he took on the very nature of a servant. Now, that's the same word that is uh, used in verse 6. Who being in very nature God, he took the very nature of a servant. And what he's Paul is saying is just as he wasn't pretending at being God, so neither was he pretending to be a servant. It wasn't some kind of play acting. It wasn't some kind of role play. He really did become a slave. That is, he took the lowest status available to him. And the verb that Paul uses there is active. That is, he took hold of it. So he didn't hold on tenaciously to being God in in all of his visible glory, but he did actively take hold of being a servant, of being a slave, of being a nobody, of being a reject, of being the scum of the earth. That's what he did. That's phenomenal. And, And... And I fear, I fear for my own soul, I fear for our soul and God's people, that when we read this passage of Scripture, which for so many of us is so familiar, that uh, the familiarity can breed a sense of, of contempt or at least indifference, when the truth of which it speaks is sublime. The truth of which it speaks should so impact us every time that we are lost in wonder, love and praise, that God should be do this, that God himself should become this. Being found in appearance of a man. That is, he joined humanity. He came into the same conditions of human life as us. That in the incarnation, God became something that he had hitherto not been. Do you realize that? In the incarnation, God became something that hitherto he had not been. That is phenomenal. He became a member of the human race in general. He became a man in particular. And this earths it for us, doesn't it? This is what incarnation means. It means enfleshment. He submitted himself to our limitations. He confined himself to our restrictions. So that although he was in very nature God, by taking the form of a, a by, by, by becoming the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, that meant he, he submitted, it, he, he confined himself to, to being in one place at one time. It meant that he had to learn to speak. I am in the privileged position of being a father of four kids, but the grandfather of six. I told my children a while ago that uh, I'd come to realize that children are a necessary evil. Um, I like to encourage them. Um, and uh, what I mean by that is that you have to have children in order to have grandchildren. But it's the grandchildren that are the real blessing. Um, but um, it's just a delight. Uh, so, so, so I have a, a grandchild that is just over a year, Ben. And uh, Ben is a, is a delightful, happy uh, child who, who has prop forward thighs already. Um, and um, Ben isn't the most articulate. Uh, but he grunts and he growls. Uh, and, and he tries to kind of articulate something, but nothing of any substance comes out. Well... That's exactly what Jesus had to do. It's, it's, it's incredible. He had to acquire knowledge. He had to learn things. 
He had to feed from his mother's breast. He had to have his nappy changed. It means that he lived and he breathed and he ate and he excreted and he thrived and he struggled just like the rest of us. You see, our exalted view of Jesus should never preclude just how earthy and mundane he was. He was found in appearance as a man. Artists and poets throughout the centuries have downplayed or ignored this aspect. And and, and our sense of reverence sometimes inhibits us from grasping just how truly human he was. But he was truly human. This is integral to the gospel. This is the real Jesus. This is the real God. And there is no other God like him. In the whole of of, of the world religions, there is no God like this God. And as we're building up to the Christmas story, we get an insight into that, don't we? A teenage girl conceiving and giving birth to a child who was conceived out of marriage. And the actual delivery in a town that they didn't know and in a place that wasn't their home. And in conditions that were squalid and dirty and demeaning. All that was true, wasn't it? Forget the, uh, the, 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 the safe and secure uh, nativity scenes of antiseptic straw and house-trained donkeys. That just didn't happen. I, I used to work, uh, I funded, uh, part funded my first church planting effort as a, as a young man of 22 uh, years old by um, milking uh, a herd of cows. And I know what cows do when you're standing behind them. From personal experience, I know what it is to be covered by what cows do. And those were the kind of animals that filled this stable where Jesus was born. And to top it all, the only visitors were a bunch of social outcasts, rejects, nobodies, known as shepherds. You see, from the glory of heaven to the slums of earth from visible God in all of his glory to as it were in a moment a nobody and that was just the beginning of a remarkable life that was characterized by service you see this isn't what God is meant to do this isn't who God is meant to be this isn't how God is meant to behave but this God the true God that's exactly what he does This is the greatest story ever told, isn't it? And it's a true story, and that's why it's even greater still. No wonder Paul summed it up with this very simple phrase in verse 8. He humbled himself. Did you notice that? Not that he was humbled, but that he humbled himself. There was no sense in which Jesus in this whole process from the glory of God to the slums of earth was, was passive in which he was acted upon. No, he acted himself. He was the player. He was the participant. He was the primary actor. He humbled himself. And not only to a feeding trough, but to a cross of shame. It's phenomenal, isn't it? And he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That word even even this, even as low as this. If you think the feeding trough was, was, as it were, the pits, well then you go to this hill just outside the city of Jerusalem. 
You go to the, that engulfing darkness. You go to the degradation, the beating, the bloodedness, the nakedness, the pain and the shame. That's what it means to say that he humbled himself. And he was as much God there as he was in that feeding trough. And he was as much God there as he was in the great throne room of heaven. He was as much God there on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At no point did he stop being God because he was in very nature God. Because it was God himself, the God-man who was crucified. And look at verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Did you see that word there at the beginning of verse 9? Therefore, cause and effect. Because the Son did what he did, The Father did what He did, which was to exalt Him. Why? So that, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that this man, Jesus, is Christ the Lord. And here, what Paul is doing is quoting from Psalm 45, uh, from Isaiah 45, verses 22 and 23. Where this is God speaking, and this is what he says. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn, by my mouth, have uttered, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow, and by me, every tongue will swear and Paul says that's fulfilled in Christ in this great missionary section of the prophet Isaiah that it is now fulfilled in Jesus Isaiah is talking about gospel expansion he's talking about this theme that is occupying us this weekend namely mission he's talking about in other words the rule of King Jesus extending around the earth But yes, Jesus did come to be that fertilized egg in the womb of a virgin. He did come into a particular place at a particular time. He did, as it were, locate a particular place called Calvary at a particular time in history. He was limited in that place and that time, but his outstretched arms were embracing the whole world. His outstretched arms were, as it were, enveloping all time and all space and all people. And that's how the darkness is expelled. That's how Jesus shines. So this is this great hymn that Paul inserts or composes. We don't know. But it is a great hymn, a glorious hymn, that should provoke us to worship, that should evoke praise from us, from our very hearts. It should leave us saying, what what God is this? There is no God like this God. There is no king like King Jesus. But remember, this is in the middle of a section. We dived in, as it were, at verse 6 to 11. We still have verses 2 to 5 and verses 12 to 16 to consider. Because this is the answer to how Jesus shines. And what I want you to do tonight is just notice this one thing. Just how ordinary and mundane it is really it's just terribly ordinary it's just just terribly mundane it's just very everyday 
If you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, any comfort from His love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one spirit and purpose. You can see what Paul's doing, can't you? He's saying to this church, in this Roman colony, where in, in a colony where they were proud of the fact that they were like a little Rome, uh, that was the name that, that, that they were given, uh, to be a, a, a citizen of Philippi was to be uh, a citizen of Rome. It was a glorious privilege. And Paul is saying to this small church, he's saying to them, look, things are getting difficult for you. Yes, you are beginning to face opposition, but you've got to stand firm for Jesus. You've got to hold out the gospel. And how do you do that? You do that through not letting factions develop among you. Not letting gossip go on between you. You do that by being of the same mind. By being of one love together. By, by, by being committed to one another. And doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. You do it by being humble. And you know what he's going to go on to say about being humble, don't you? He's going to point them to King Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he uh, emptied himself, and he was found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. So if you want to know what I mean when I talk about being humble, says Paul, this is what I mean. So, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Look at verse 4. Because this is actually a very weak translation of what Paul is actually saying. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. What Paul actually says is, each of you should look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. It's not you look to your own interests and the interests of others. Forget your own interests so that you might look to the interests of others. You know, in the church of Jesus Christ, the last person that matters is me. That should be my perspective. Whoever it is about, it is not about me. It is about God and it is about others. God has called me. God has saved me. God has renewed me so that I might be a lover of God and a lover of others. In my human flesh, I seek to be a lover of self. But that is a, that, 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 that is a degrading of what God has made me to be. He's made me to be a lover of God and a lover of others. So whoever it is about, it's not about me. So I should not be looking out for my own interests, but I should be looking out for the interests of others. That's how Jesus shines, through communities like that. I told you it was simple, didn't I? I told you it was mundane. I told you it was, it was very ordinary and very everyday. And just in case you think I'm making this connection up, just look at verse 5. Your attitude, which Paul has just been speaking about, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So this sublime bit of theology dropped into the middle of chapter 2 isn't to display Paul's great grasp of theology or great Paul's great skill as a hymn writer. It is to, to show them what theology does and that is theology is earthed in the everyday experience of his people. It is worked out at ground level in the messy stuff of human relationships. That's where sin rears its ugly head and that's where grace achieves its most remarkable victories. 
among us as God's people. I, uh, I'm, I, I belong to a church that uh, has a twin focus, and we're known for this. Uh, that is uh, the gospel word and gospel community. And I'm often talked about as being like the community guy. People think that I'm this kind of great extrovert who just loves being with people. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing. I'm an introvert. I am the most interesting person in this room. Fact. That's it. It just says, I, I f- would much prefer spending time with me than with any of you. And I don't even know you, but I guarantee you that's the case. So I'm not like this great extrovert who just loves being with people and is all smiley. Really, does it look like I could be? There was one occasion when I was on the, uh, the, the, the tube down in London. And uh, you, you know what it's like, public transport down in uh, uh, the, uh, London like that. And uh, just how squashed and invasion of personal space it is. Well, there was this man holding on to the rail. And he was, uh, he was a big man, let's put it that way. Um, and uh, it was in the middle of summer. And uh, it was very hot. Everybody was uh, perspiring profusely. Um, this man particularly. And he was, uh, he was a big man and I was kind of here. <laughs> it was not a pleasant experience. Um, and uh, he had this t-shirt on that said guess. Now I didn't know that guess is a close range. So as I looked at guess, I just looked at him and said, um, maybe a underactive thyroid gland? <laughs> See, I'm not what you call a cuddly kind of person. It's just not who I am. But it's in community that grace does its work. It's in community that takes somebody who is as prickly as me and gives me a love for other people. Who who turns me into somebody who says, no, that I don't want to look out for my interests. I want to look out for the interests of others. It gives me a commitment to seek their good rather than my own. It gives me an, a, a willingness to open my home when I'd rather be on my own. It gives me a willingness to welcome people to my table when I would much rather it was just me and my wife eating there. It gives me a willingness to share, to share my time, to share my affections, to be generous with my home and my resources. That's what the gospel does because that's how the gospel is put on display because that's how Jesus shines. It's as simple and it's as mundane as that. And I love just how ordinary it is. But Paul isn't finished. It isn't as though he says that, then he goes on with this great bit of theology and then he he carries on on this kind of elevated play. No, he comes right back to it. He says, therefore, my dear friends, verse 12, uh, obey as you always have done. Work out your own salvation because it's God who works in you. And, And what does that mean? How do we work out our own salvation? How do we give evidence that God is working in us to will uh, and to work according to his good pleasure? Well, there it is again, verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing. I love the accessibility of this. I love the way this enfranchises all of God's people. And I want to say to you, as a church, as you think about your role in this city of Edinburgh, as a church, as you think about your role in global mission, I want to say to you, forget strategies. 
I want to advise you, warn you about experts. Don't be hoodwinked them by them. Don't be impressed by titles like missiologists or intimidated by words like missional. Just be the people of God who don't grumble, who don't complain, who don't gripe and argue. That's how we shine. That's evidence of God at work. When he turns lovers of selves into lovers of God and lovers of others. That's a beautiful work of grace that only the Spirit can do as he takes the finished work of Christ on the cross and applies it to our hearts. That's only what God can do as he gives us new hearts to replace the hearts of stone that were there by being distinctive. That, as Paul goes on to say, is how we hold out the word of life. It could also be you hold on to the word of life. And uh, there's two kind of meanings there. Let's just have a look at both, both of them briefly. Let's say he's meaning hold on to the word of life. And what he's saying there is that it is this word of life, the gospel, the gospel that he's just rehearsed so sublimely and eloquently in verses 6 through 11. It is that gospel that is going to help us to be these people. He's going to make us to be these people. He's going to turn us into these people from being lovers of self to lovers of God and others and sustain us in that. The gospel that saved us is that gospel that is going to sanctify us. So hold on to that word of life. You don't need anything else. You don't need any other strategy. You don't need any their advice you just hold on to this word of life because that will continue to transform you because that is the power of God for salvation in all of its glory in all of its expansive reach that is the gospel that will bring you to glory having rescued you from the pit it is that gospel nothing more nothing less so hold on to it Rehearse the gospel among you. When your heart is growing hard, rehearse the gospel. If your heart is, is, is so hard as it were, your affection so dulled, then just ask your brother or your sister to rehearse this gospel to you so that your heart might be softened again, so that you're transformed again into being a lover of God and a lover of others. I talk about how, yes, I, I, I believe I became a Christian when I was 10 years old. I believe I was transferred from darkness to light 46 years ago. I believe that happened then. It was decisive. It was clear. But there's a sense in which I have been saved multiple times since then. Every time I hear the gospel spoken softly to me in a moment of sin that calls me back to repentance. Every time I see the glory of Christ in a new light. Every time the, 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 the majesty of the Savior dawns upon my soul afresh. It's as though I've never seen his glory before. And I say, God be merciful to me, the sinner. It's as though I'm saved again and again and again and again. And that happens most in community. Because I sin in everyday life, that's where I need the gospel applied in everyday life. It's no good just coming to church on a Sunday and getting the gospel, getting my fill, as it were, to last me to next Sunday and then going out into that big, bad, wide world. That just won't cut it. That just won't work. I promise you it won't. We need to be embedded in community so this gospel word that is preached on a Sunday is rehearsed and massaged into our hearts or to, to use Martin Luther's great phrase, it is, it is hammered into our heads daily, beat into our brains so that we might believe it. In the moment of sin so that we might believe it. 
Just when I'm about to grumble, just when I'm about to gripe, just when I'm about to complain and gossip, that that's when the gospel is applied. And that's when I, instead I speak a word that builds up. Instead I speak a word that glorifies God. Instead I speak a word of Jesus to an unbeliever. Those are the kind of lives that adorn the gospel. Those are the kind of lives that don't make the gospel attractive, but show just how attractive the gospel is. Imagine if communities like that were dispersed around this city. Imagine if that was our primary mission strategy around the world, wherever we, uh, you as a church, have interests. Imagine if that's what you were primarily about, the establishment of those communities, because that's church planting. And so the challenge is go to it, church. Go and light candles all around this city. Go and light candles all around this world. See, what we do as God's people, and Liam alluded to this at the beginning, that uh, what we do as God's people is all too easy, is that we, we lament the fact of uh, just how, how, how things are so difficult. That, that here we are at a particular time, you're doing this as you're going through a church in 1 Peter, you'll see this, that, that we find ourselves increasingly pushed to the margins of society. We see ourselves as peripheral. We're despised and rejected. Things have changed so much in, in, since, as I've grown up, and, and, and it is far harder now for young people as it was, than, than it was for me, and it was hard enough back then. But we can so easily just sit in huddles lamenting the state of the nation and the wickedness that surrounds us, the, the decline of our culture and the horror of sin. We can do that. We can sit there complaining and grumbling and griping and to say, what is this world coming to? But we should have that perspective. Of, of, in the book of Esther that we have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this so that we don't question God's providence in bringing us to the kingdom for such a time as this that we don't question his wisdom and his goodness in allowing the state of the nation to the world to be like it is now but rather uh, because that, when we do that when we sit and we grumble and we complain and we gripe either amongst each other about each other or about the leaders of the church or about the leaders of our society as we do that what we're doing is we're letting the darkness encroach we're allowing the darkness to infect we're letting the darkness in and the light is going to flicker and come to nothing no the better thing to do is to light a candle by being the dark by being the church it is to get out there in the world together as a people of God that's a far better strategy that's a far better response that's a far better encouragement to us as God's people and just finally if you have a heart to see that happen here in Sheffield, I guarantee you, you will have a heart to see it happening anywhere in the world, everywhere in the world. You cannot want to see the light of the glory of God shine here without wanting to see the light of the glory of God shine elsewhere because it's about Jesus. He's the one that you want to make famous. He's the one that you want to see others drawn to irresistibly so that they might find life. That verse that Liam quoted is a great verse from Ephesians 5, isn't it? Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Did you know what Paul was doing there in Ephesians? He was talking to them about being the church. He said, by being light, that's how Christ shines. And when Christ shines, 
that's when people get saved that's when the church is, is built that's when the kingdom of God expands that's when Jesus becomes more famous and is seen to be the glorious king that he is it's a, it's a strategy that equips you to go out and be the people of God you're all missionaries go and be missionaries together in this city and in this world to the fame of Jesus Amen